Hello and welcome to Talking Moves, a podcast from Greenwich Dance where dance artists come together to talk about their work and practice, the things that matter and the issues which move them. I'm Melanie Precious and in this episode I'm talking to two artists about building an audience for your work. We make art for people, don't we? And if we have no audience, then I guess there's no reason for the work. So how then do we bring audiences to the work? How do we introduce dance to people who haven't had an opportunity to discover it? And what do we ask of them other than to be spectators? To mull that over with us, we have Deborah Light, mover, maker, mother, and artistic director of Light, Lad and Emberton, and Tom Hobden, choreographer, dance educationalist, mentor, and national leader in community dance practice, Welcome, both of you. Thanks for finding the time to come together this morning. Hi, Mel. So before we talk about the audiences for your work, let's have a quick chat about the work itself. Deborah, your company makes productions that move people physically and emotionally in castles, village halls, theatres, urban spaces and beaches in Wales and beyond. Sounds like somewhere I want to be right now. Tell us more about the work you make. Deborah, Good morning. So I'm Deborah. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. I'm based in Cardiff. And yeah, I refer to myself as a mover, maker and mother. So I make my own work as an individual artist, um, although that's taken a bit of a backseat while I've had children. But I also co-direct a company called Light Lad and Emberton. So that's myself, Deborah Light, working together with Eddie Lad, Gwyn Emberton and producer Laura Drain. And we make work in Wales. Our work is always bilingual. And none of our work has been for theatre spaces, as in a sort of end-on audience sat on one side and the performance sat on the other. Our work has always asked the audience to, in some ways, be an active participant in the work, or it's an immersive experience where the audience are part of the event. I think that's going to be really relevant today as we talk about audiences, because you're absolutely right. We are talking about that complex relationship that we're having with audiences that we're asking much more of them Mm. than just to come into that venue. You've got a piece of work called Seeds and Bones, an archaeology of me. And I wondered if you just told us a little bit about that piece that might give listeners a bit more of an understanding of the kind of work that you make, Deborah. Yeah. So this is one of my pieces as an individual artist. And in a way, it's an ongoing research project that helped me navigate having children. So there's been sort of research pockets in between giving birth to three children. And what happened there was I kind of investigated my own family tree, not an extensive family tree, but just to my parents and my children and my siblings. And that involved bringing an object from each of those people into the space and using those objects to tell the story of my own connections with my own family, but really to reflect on a sort of broader evolutionary history that belongs to all of us that's a shared history and so what I really wanted to do was invite the audience into that space as I'm telling their story alongside telling my own story so that was set up as an installation space where people were invited to come and sort of participate in activities there was a knitting table there was a table where there was a a periodic table but that asked people what they connected to rather than the chemical elements So the first invitation was to come and engage in activity with me in the space alongside them. And then that sort of shifted into a performative section that people could carry on doing these activities if they wanted. And then what that opened up was a kind of exit into conversation. Oh, lovely. And that was one phase of it. But it feels like that project is something to go back to now and reimagine what that might be 
is it my story that's still told or is it other people's stories that are told? Really interesting. We're going to unpick some of those elements. I'm really interested in how that brings everything together, that invitation, that conversation. We'll find Mm. out much more about how we're all scaffolding that experience. Tom, UNIT makes exceptionally heartfelt and honest dance for everybody. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, well, so, so much has changed for me across the pandemic. I sort of feel like there's three different artists. There's kind of something before, there's something during, and there's something that's happening kind of now. And that's changed my relationships with audiences a lot as well. I think in the initial instance, there was that sort of sense of making work for theatres and in schools and in village halls, um, uh, shipping containers, uh, all kinds of sort of different places there. Then we were kind of removed from our audience. So then I kind of went online. I needed to make. I couldn't stop making. I needed to feel like I was doing something. And this kind of very local audience I have, because I'm based in uh, Suffolk, turned into kind of like this nationwide kind of experience which surprised me. And actually something in that was that I did a talk called Dance, Digital and Participation, did it to 450 community artists all across the country, and then created a YouTube channel that just came out of that. And in that, I didn't really ask about who the audience was going to be at all. I just put it out there and saw what happened. And the audience found me, which has been really fascinating and interesting. And then this kind of third part where I am now is that we create uh, work that's live in kind of community settings. So we're about to be at the National Horse Race Museum and we are making work in a school and a theatre again. But I also make work that's online now. And what's really interesting is before I always felt totally located in an area and now that doesn't feel that way at all. And, And in fact, it felt something that felt quite perhaps limiting as a community artist at the time to always be stuck in a place, particularly when organisations around me who have been really encouraging me to go further and to go and to meet other people. But that's quite hard to do to kind of like land yourself in lots of new areas all of the time. We hear about helicoptering all of the time. And actually, I don't like it. I don't know how to do that. So somehow this online experience has really begun to shift that for me. That's really interesting. We're going to get into a little bit of online as well. But you said something there, Tom, which leads me so perfectly into my first big question for you both, which is, I think, the million dollar question in a way. What comes first, the dance or the audience? And I was quite interested in what you said about just that need to make. And I wonder, it might not always be the same. It might be project related, you know, which comes first, dance or audience. And it felt interesting that during the pandemic, the need to make perhaps came first and the audience came later. But yeah, I wondered if you'd talk us through that and what your thinking process is if you are considering that audience first before you make. I guess so many of the times commissions are brought to unit, you know, the audience and the community is there. So I guess in a lot of the time, I start to think about who surrounds that community group, who supports that community group, who connects with that community group. The other thought that literally runs through my head the whole time with unit and all the work is don't laugh. Would my mum understand this? Would she come? I I think about her a lot. Because in unit, we talk about everyday people. And in my mind, that's, you know, mechanics and shop workers and just everyday people that would kind of understand it. If you were sat at a wedding, at a wedding table, who are those people that would just kind of go, oh, yeah, I kind of connect with this. And I try to have those people in the back of my mind when creating things. Sometimes that can feel 
like a little sort of stifling. And sometimes it can bring up quite awkward conversations in the producing of things. But sometimes it really grounds me back down to the earth because I think sometimes I felt very excluded from a lot of dance work. In fact, huge quantities of dance work where I just don't feel like that this is for me. And when somebody's saying to me, you spend your entire life doing this and you don't understand it, what chance have I got kind of thing? And I don't ever sometimes see it as a way of dumbing down or, you know, shifting it. But I think there are things just like Deborah was saying at the beginning that make things easier for people to be able to get into. So films can have incredibly contemporary complex ideas in them but sometimes the nature of sitting at the cinema with popcorn makes it easier and more digestible to watch but we don't do that in dance we tell you come to an awkward space come to something that's difficult listen to some awkward music and also if you don't understand it feel not very clever and I find that very very difficult and I have wondered a lot recently about how we shift the parameters to make it easier an example like farmers fairs I love a farmer's fair because I love having a burger. I'm maybe not so interested in all the tables. And that's a way to draw people in. And I think, why don't we do that in dance? Why don't we ever have something that kind of connects us immediately? It's so true. And I think part of the reason for having you two here today as well is because you're already a step in that direction of building an infrastructure of making your dance that doesn't rely on that black box, as you say, that awkward space set buying of a ticket. And I love that analogy of the farmer's fair. We're thinking of doing something very similar this summer in Greenwich, taking really high quality dance to a fate, essentially. Deborah, what comes first for you? Um I think it might be useful to go back a bit because when I was first making work, it was something a bit like Tom was saying, of just made it because he had to make, wanted to make. I was lucky enough to have some support and people trusting me and going, okay, make what you want to make as an artist. And then putting that in front of an audience, then seeing how it meets an audience. And I think that's really important because what that did was allow me to develop my craft, you know, almost before being able to think about and see how things meet an audience, experience it, because now I can think about an audience because I've experienced it. Yeah. You know, not all artists are necessarily ready or able to understand or have the experience to know how things meet an audience. And we still have to offer them mm. the opportunity to make. So they learn that. That for me is a little bit frightening, maybe in some of the expectations on artists nowadays of we have to know everything about how it meets an audience. But that's my sort of personal experience of I really value that time of being allowed to make what I wanted to make as an artist and that has helped me develop a craft but then as Light Lad Emberton I think in all of our works the frame the context has been crucial and by that I mean how the audience meets the work what is our expectation of the audience and that has come very early on in the process and they've all been quite different so the first work we made was about Caitlin Thomas, wife of Dylan Thomas, and they had a very tumultuous relationship. He died quite early on. They were both alcoholics. And after he had died, she went to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. So the frame that we set up for the work was an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. So a circle of chairs. And the audience are invited to sit in this circle. Now, what we realized quite early on in the process was we needed to break this circle. The action needed to go beyond the circle. So what we ended up with was a circle of 40 chairs, 20 of which the audience could sit on and 20 of which became players in the performance. They got thrown, they became all sorts of things. So it became a very small audience. It became a show for mm. 20 people. And because the activity was happening in the circle and beyond it, 
although we weren't asking them to do anything, the audience, they became players. They became the witnesses to Caitlin's journey and they became witnesses to each other in a way. And then we had a commission that was from CADU and Visit Wales. And that was to make something around the story of Owen Glyndor, who is the last Welsh Prince of Wales, rebel Prince of Wales. And we wanted very much to make something that was nowhere near the sort of maybe usual ways of telling these stories of reenactment. And so we came up with a silent disco format where basically club classics are smashed together with medieval history. I've taken part in this and it's absolutely <laughs> phenomenal. Yeah, it's great fun. Yeah. And the audience become the participants. They are the participants in a silent disco. Not maybe a normal silent disco in that sometimes you're invited to dance as you please, as you want. Yeah. Sometimes there's very clear instructions. There's a tumpath section, which is the Welsh version of a Cayley. And again, some of the audience members are pulled out to be particular players in the yeah. narrative. And we take you on a journey through whatever space we're inhabiting. So the frame and how we think the audience will be meeting the work comes first. And then we sort of unpick the journey and the material that inhabits that frame. That's really helpful to understand, I think. And that's a really lovely way of talking about that frame and how you've put such thought into how you're going to like design that experience in a way. Going back to the Caitlin Thomas work yeah. and identifying the gap or the audience that you were going for, what were you trying to do with that particular work? Were you trying to find people that you wanted to tell that particular historical story to? Or were you trying to find an accessible way of making dance for people that hadn't experienced dance before? Or what was the target audience for that work, do you think? Well, it came as a commission, right. which is actually how how most of Light Lad Emberton works have come yeah, about. Which is a slightly different situation, I think, right? Because you've got a brief coming all around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were asked to make a work about Caitlin Thomas, or Eddie was asked to make a work about Caitlin Thomas. And it was through that that Light Lad Emberton essentially formed yeah. through making that work. And so we always knew that the initial context was for Dylan Thomas celebrations at the National Library of Wales. And I think it was then through making it you then see, okay, well, this has potential to go here, 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 here. And in some ways, the dance becomes the, the paintbrush to tell the story. But actually, you might have chosen a different art form. It's almost irrelevant, isn't yeah. it? It's the structure. I think uh, what was really interesting about that work was, although it was so rooted in this couple, in this Welsh narrative, we also took that work to India right. and showed it to young people in it, like students in India. And it was still so powerful and so strong, essentially, because, you know, although the story is about Caitlin and her relationship with Dylan, it's also a story that is repeated over and over and over and over again of a difficult relationship where the woman almost puts aside her career, puts aside her future for the husband and for the family. And, you know, it's a story that although is specific, it also speaks to a much broader yes. narrative as well. Yes, yeah, like an onion, you're almost unpicking the layers. That's yeah. the first layer you might encounter this particular story, but then actually underneath that, there's something else. Tom, you were yeah. about to say something. I'm sorry if you can hear this drilling yeah. behind. I know Carmel will work magic in the edit, but might not be able to do it too much because <laughs> it is incessant. So apologies to anyone that's hearing that. Tom, you were about to say something. Um, I think it was really interesting, the word target audience. When I was thinking about joining this conversation today, I really find there's this tension between and in fact, it's a journey that I'm on at the moment between the kind of this entrepreneur yeah. and being an artist and it being a business and it being some art that's being made. Yeah, and yeah, some yeah. of the 
feelings that I have are that actually you can't stop creativity as much as I would love to try and you know think about target audiences every five minutes and make sure that the profit or the value is coming in from the project actually I'm still going to make something and I still find that you know like I'd like to make a postcard or a talk or a thing on the outside and a thing that is doing it and as an artist I want to kind of keep that magic going you know like keep churning it all out however we exist in a landscape where we want our practice to go from one to the next from one to the next from one to the next and to keep moving and to do that there has to be some kind of value exchange and previously I used to sort of say like a financial exchange because sometimes always things come down to money but actually I think with community work they can have much more political power and social power which allows it to kind of move forwards which means you do need to think about your audience you do need to keep them there and you do need to kind of keep them engaged so I find it's a little bit of a tension and I'm sure that it's probably to do with kind of funding related things but one thing that has definitely started to occur for unit is just about how you build that I don't want to say core audience but you know just those people that really love what you do and they kind of come with you on those journeys and then they kind of make those further recommendations to their friends to sort of come on and then to be able to do that and what's interesting is that we're now having this place between me finding new audiences which feels like quite a perhaps an arts council term to do that as well as just keeping the core audience that we have all of the time and it's um because when I think about a cupcake maker, <laughs> they don't have the cupcake <laughs> council to sort of respond to. So they really have to think about their audience and the way that they do that. And that's something that I think about, again, a lot is a bit like, how do I have my people and then bring them along with me from project to project? And how do they trust me that it's OK that I made a postcard yeah. this week and that I made a, a thing this week? And I made something very difficult to yeah. watch this week and something like a disco, like you're talking about, Deborah. The next I love week. the How's cupcake that okay? analogy because it does clarify, it does cut through all the Arts Council speak that you just alluded to and that idea of the new audiences versus retaining, which is one of my questions, which we, we may or may not get onto because there is so much to talk about here. But um, I wonder about that cupcake maker. They obviously want to keep their existing customers and so they would be really trying hard to do that. And I wonder how much of their energy is spent into, into finding new cupcake audience, which we seem to spend... A hundred percent of our time, because that seems to be the golden ticket from someone like the Cupcake Council that ask us to always be trying to find new audiences for dance. And we are thinking a lot about that as Greenwich Dance at the moment, because for me, retaining my audiences is just as important as chasing those new ones. I want to do both in equal measure. I'm, I don't just want to put every egg into the finding new audiences basket. I'm, I'm trying to create an experience where people can keep coming back and feeling familiar with us. But but I wanted to drill down onto this tension that you talked about, Tom, because I wondered, and I think it might be more relevant to you than Deborah because of what you were saying about the commissioning, Deborah. But I wondered how much of the work that you make do you feel you need to make for the tour booker or programmer? And I'm being a bit cynical here, but I do think about the artist's life a lot and think when you've got a business head on, when you're thinking up a new work, are you thinking about that? for the audience are you thinking about it for yourself or are you thinking festivals would like this <laughs> you know I'm going to make something for a tour because actually we have to make money or if it's not money you have to get commissions for your work you know you have to otherwise there's no point doing it so I wondered how that tension plays out for you perhaps it is relevant to both of you what do you think is it relevant to you Deborah? Yeah definitely and you know for me as an individual artist in particular in that I do feel like I'm about to enter this new phase 
youngest child is now in school it's like okay what's my work my practice where's that going to go and it's like oh god the funding cycles you know it's really a challenge and what do they want you need to make something that a venue wants right otherwise you know yeah absolutely but how also do I begin to know what that is without being able to reinvest in an artistic practice maybe I think the process of understanding that is challenging where do we start and where are we enabled to start in a way what comes first or Tom what about you does that ever challenge you yeah for me it's hugely 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 difficult because again my very hoppy brain just wants me to make whatever I kind of want to make really and actually each time I have attempted to make something that feels very purposeful for a specific brief from an external I don't know that I have the same integrity that goes into it something is always a little off kilter but I have witnessed other artists that have made fab Christmas shows that have just generated you know like the Mariah Carey story you know her whole life is sorted now because she made that great song you know and that that is there. I mean, we have just recently landed upon making an online disco and an online class. We've just started to make a festival piece. And interestingly, so many people are coming towards us with those ideas. I find it difficult because it's like we were making the same work before and after. It just so happens this is what we want to be able to do in those bits. So I think that there's this difficulty or like relationship building that you have to do continuously with organisations to support you both with the popular things and the less popular things to be able to kind of keep the connection and to kind of keep it growing. But I have to say, if I really work in collaboration with a venue, that does take some of the power away from the artist. And interestingly, some of the online shows that we're making exist for unit entirely on Eventbrite. I'm allowed to put on a performance whenever I like. And that has changed a lot of the game for us. And the newness of some of the technology that's coming forwards will mean that that's going to happen even more so coming. And then this relationship between venue and artist is going to shift, you know, again. That's so interesting. There's a couple of things I wanted to sort of draw on from Greenwich Dance to feed into this conversation. One is we're trying to move towards an artist in residence programme where there's enough space built into the brief to the artist to enable them to make what they want to make. So there's a bit of, please, can you deliver this programme? Because this is a programme we're funded for and we have to do X, Y, Z. And we hope that that also chimes with your artistic values. And that's why we've chosen you to do it. But also here's some space, some time, some money, some resource for you to do what you want to do, which we hope our communities will also love because we know that you're connected to them and and seeing if we can make that kind of dual relationship work. But the other thing that really came to my mind as I was thinking about this dilemma of whether you're having to make work for your marketplace, if we're really going to start thinking about being a business, is when we started pitching for Arts Unboxed. So we'll talk a little bit more about this throughout this season of podcasts, actually, because it chimes with quite a lot of what we're trying to unpick in this series. But it was a platform that we built during the pandemic for a couple of reasons. One, to get artists working again. Two, to tour ideas rather than people. So the idea is that an artist creates a format for something, whether that be a show or a participatory project or performance and can write the recipe down for it that somebody else can do somewhere else so we're no longer having to shift that artist with their company in a van up north a community up there can do it so it's also about supporting regional employment but for that to work someone needs to buy it someone needs to want it and when they do the artist is remunerated 
So when we had all of these artists in the interview process, we had to really ask them, who's the market for this? And what are you making? And why do they want to buy it? And it's a really uncomfortable thing to ask an artist because quite often they're starting from a different place. It's something that's burning. It's an expression. That's what art's about. There's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. That's why it's there. So we were really asking artists to put that to one side in a way and think about their market first. And on reflection, I think some of those have been more successful than others because that's quite a hard thing to do. And we're still learning how that process works. So I think there's no right or wrong. And I think it's about a kind of Rubik's Cube, isn't it? There's different facets, there's different sides and you keep turning it. I'd say, Mel, that um, on some of the entrepreneur courses that I've been on, the creation period at the beginning can feel very exciting and fruitful and endless and lots of possibility. But generally, it does come after the moment when we discover who the audience actually is. The thing is, sometimes we make huge things and then we go, who's this for? And actually, one of the things that we're starting to shift to now is to make smaller, scrappier things and put it in front of people very, very quickly to go, who is this for? So I think sometimes asking, who is this giant thing? for getting all the way through it and then going oh actually it's not anymore is tricky but actually getting it to a point before it's even ready and going who's it for tends to give you a better answer it's it's like the entrepreneurial trick of basically putting out a product before it's ready and then seeing what the audience and market wants and that's what tech companies do all the time isn't it and I think that's also really interesting and I think that's where your entrepreneurial eye is really coming out Tom is sometimes I find in dance that we won't do it until it's perfect and so then you've missed the boat haven't you you've missed that curve whereas if you can shove it out there quickly we have a little phrase that we've stolen from a book called Brave New Work, which we use at Greenwich Dance, which is, is this safe to try? And if we've made sure it's safe to try, we can test it and we can see what the response is. And you can keep refining it. You don't have to wait until it's perfect. That, again, is perhaps uncomfortable for artists because when you put work out there, you've got your name attached to it and all of that kind of thing. I think it would be great, but I think maybe our our funding models or our support structures don't really accommodate for that either because we maybe have a research phase or a development phase and then that money comes to an end right so there isn't an option of there's a research phase and that might end with a b or c it's like it's done yeah (laughs) and then for example the seeds and bones project actually when I got to that point of sharing was like actually this is safe and I could do this and I could have put that into a run of a week you know it was time sensitive because I was heavily pregnant at the time and actually that version of the work has now gone because I'm not pregnant anymore you can't bring it back I can't bring it back and it could Mm. have existed and the same with research work that I did with my family so during lockdown we got a bit of seed funding to make work with the three children that was called who's in charge (laughs) or I think that name appeared as we went through it (laughs) Um, you know we got to a point where we shared it in a park with other families And actually, we could have done another little stretch and been able to put it in front of other people. But there isn't those sort of immediate like injection funds to go, okay, let's run with it. And I think you're absolutely right in terms of how particularly funders might want us to report against the work. There's this definite, whether it's implied or whether it's just what we feel, but it feels like you have to at the end of it say, that was amazing. It was a success. And you're not allowed to say, didn't quite work out how I thought it would it did something different and we went over here and I mean and sometimes you can maybe that is coming in but certainly it does feel sometimes that that's a scary thing to do in case you don't get it next time that's where yeah. those kind of funding models for all of our practices begin to yeah. have that tension and something that we're thinking a lot about at the moment there is an American writer 
I think this was written about eight, 10 years ago, a guy called Kevin Kelly, and he talks about the thousand true fans. The principle of it is, is basically if you can make 1000 people pay in the American terms, $100 or £100, then that's a £100,000 business, which for the majority of artists would be a well over what we might need to be able to support our business. It's something that we've really thought a lot about at Unit now, like who are our first 100 and who are the second 200 and how do we kind of meet going those forwards? And I say this because I want to have a place between the sort of funded model, which allows for the bigger injections of cash, but also the smaller amounts of money, which allow you to go with the flexibility of like, this project was great, let's keep it going forward. It needs to turn very quickly and have something else involved. Let's make it go forward rather than just feel suddenly rug from beneath your feet to be able to like go, okay. But it does mean when I think about these thousand true fans, what do do they want? How do I keep them? How do I make them be alongside me? What is it that they need from me to continue to purchase with things? And that's felt, I have to say, uncomfortable like initially. But what's interesting is Mm. that now I look at the project as little worlds like little cultures rather than individual performances so 20 questions is one performance that we made whereby we go to a community we ask them a set of 20 questions they answer and respond and perform in their own performance and then put that out to an audience that feels like a format of something but actually the process of 20 questions we use in loads of multiple ways we use that in our business we use it in other commissions that we're given now so we don't feel like we have to continually reinvent the wheel with different things and also think about the applications of the creativity in different kind of formats to be Mm. able to provide value. I really like that idea of the hundred special people it made me think a little bit about that Simon Sinek TED talk we did about starting with why instead of the what and the how if you talk about what you believe in then people kind of follow you and there are so many questions and I realise I'm only on about question two of everything I want to ask you so I'm going to hurtle on ahead and I want to ask you Deborah about some of the tools that you might use to draw those new audiences to your work and I wondered how much of that might be something to do with that bilingual aspect of your work which I know is wholly important particularly with your work with Lightland and Everton and I wondered whether is that a conscious tool to make your work relevant to new audiences or is there something else that's informing that decision? Yeah I, I don't think we think of it necessarily as a tool to find new audiences I think there's a commitment between us that all our work needs to be bilingual I mean, Eddie is first language Welsh speaker. The rest of us are Welsh learners. And our work has always been rooted in narratives from Wales belonging to Wales. And it just feels crucial that we bring that language to it. What I found really interesting is the journey of negotiating how and what that does to the audience experience. So, for example, Caitlin exists either as an English version or a Welsh version. Whereas Disco Distawo and Glyndor, the silent disco, exists as an integrated Welsh language, English language show. So everybody hears both languages. We have three different versions of that show. One that's, it was initially written 50-50, Welsh-English. We then wrote a solely Welsh version for the Ice Edward in Wales. And then we had a kind of 80% English version that was the version that went to surf the wave and that we would show in England or other English speaking places. But for that show, we would never have an English only version because the Welsh language is so integral to the story that we're telling. So yeah, it's always a negotiation, you know, and then we had a Christmas lockdown set of performances, which is called Deliver a Dance or Danvona Dance. It was a series of seven shows across Wales that went to doorsteps. And the decision there was the Welsh language needed to be covered across the project rather than necessarily within each 
micro performance. So for me, that's been the interesting journey of how we negotiate that bilingualism and what that offers an audience, again, how it meets an audience and considering it from the Welsh Mm. language speaker's perspective. So when it is this integrated Welsh English that the Welsh isn't saying exactly the same as the English, because there's no point, they can understand the English as well. So it's almost um, belittling for them just to hear the same thing again. So we're adding an extra layer in the Welsh. But then we have to make sure, of course, that the English language speakers are getting a clear narrative that gives them the full arc of the story. So there's a lot of complexities always to unpick in how we do this bilingualism, which has also has become trilingualism sometimes Mm -hmm. as we incorporate BSL or how audio description sits alongside that. So yeah, there's complexity. And that piece, am I right in thinking that that piece was commissioned by Visit Wales Year of Legends? Yeah. And I wondered, when you put a piece like that on at a National Heritage Site, for example, do you feel that you have a role in building the audience for that work? Or because that was a very clear commission, is that the responsibility then of the venue? I mean, I think that was part of the commission that they would kind of host the ticketing and the marketing But it's our responsibility to make sure they get good information, good images, good materials that actually says what what we want it to say. Mm -hmm. Actually, what happened was they came up with a kind of stock image of some people doing a disco and we looked at it and went, no, (laughs) it's not communicating what this thing is. And we want people to come with the right expectations because otherwise the audience get disappointed or things don't meet. So everything that we talk about has to meet what the work is otherwise. So that's interesting, Rose. I'm going to try and repeat it back just for my own understanding. So mm-hmm. we're thinking here about the company making the vehicle that is right to draw audiences to that mm-hmm. site that's commissioned you. But also you need to design the thing that's going to make people come. But you've also got to really take ownership of how that messaging is communicated so that you're feeling that your product, and I am really just talking in business speak here, aren't I? But your product is being represented and marketed in the right way. And that was something I wanted to ask you as well, Tom, is about that messaging and that communication of what you do. And I'm really conscious that you talk about everybody because I've. this is in no way a criticism because I share that vision but I struggle internally with it and I use it a lot of does everybody want to dance and I'm using this in my narrative but going back to your mum and whether she wants to take part in this thing that I'm creating or designing or thinking about so I wondered about that first how can you make dance for everybody can you and where do you come up against a hurdle so I'm asked this all of the time and actually <laughs> what one of the weird things oh. that's really exciting for me is uh, sorry Mel, but it's, it's because it's a really contentious point actually so our phrase at unit is we want to see everybody dancing every day and what yeah. that means actually is an entire life mission an entire statement to be able to think about that the other part is in the dance world is that we're absolutely completely obsessed with that dancing can only mean that it is done physically and that it is done in witness of other people. I would challenge most people to understand that they probably dance quite regularly every day for themselves from the moment of a little mini fist pump for the moment of jiggling next to somebody. But it is our, and I'm going to be really mean here, our snobbery in dance to be able to say that this is dancing and that this isn't dancing. Um, and, And actually, I'm thinking much more about the movement that's already happening for people. So for teenagers and beyond now with TikTok, 
about the everyday dancing that's happening from going to weddings and parties to a little mini fist celebration that it actually ex- already exists and it happens and I think that when people become more conscious of their everyday movement that they become more connected to dance but the problem is is that I don't think the dance world is ready to let them have that I think that we're here <laughs> saying actually dance is this over here and I say this because I've sat I've straddled across lots and lots of worlds I didn't have a particularly strong technical training I had a really really strong creative training and I've ended up leading work for the Royal Ballet School and the Royal Opera House and really those meeting points have made me go it's just dance that's all it is it's just dancing and actually we need to let go of the fact of whether we see it or not to know whether it's actually happening as well so my encouragement of everybody dancing every day is to be able to just make a playlist that makes somebody move to encourage somebody in their car to know that somebody's moving and actually we at unit now call ourselves activators i am looking to get people from zero to one and i want the rest of the dance world which is fairly brilliantly serviced to take them from one to a hundred but i just need to get them from zero to one and and i feel that actually we have a lot of that missing in our dance industry yeah I love that too, that you are thinking about your place in the ecology and the positioning of everybody else. And I try and do this too, and I don't know whether I do as well as you, but that idea of going, our role is this and then there is that organization there is that artist and they can take these people there and we don't have to do the whole thing and in fact we're better if we don't try and do the whole thing because then you are trying to scoop up that marketplace and actually what you're trying to do is find out what your niche is in it that's so much to, to ask about deborah i wanted to ask you about that messaging again because I noticed that you called yourself a mover and not a dancer and not a choreographer. And I wondered if that was conscious because I know we've talked about how the initial design of the event and you gave us those wonderful examples of frameworks and Tom's done similar in thinking about that, you know, zero to one and the playlist. I love that idea. So we've talked about how important that is. And then you made that point in one of your answers, Deborah, about how important that marketing, the imagery, the messaging is that you then encase that brilliant design with. And I wondered if there were any things that you don't do or don't say or types of pictures you don't use or do use that help communicate what it is that you do to the types of audiences that you're trying to reach. I think the D word you know it's always a discussion it's like do we use it or don't we use it in this context yeah I mean personally I say mover because my dancing my choreographing is much more about finding physical languages than putting together a string of steps and I call that dance those physical languages that finding a way of moving that communicates something but I'm not sure that other people do see it or recognize it as dance, which is why I choose to use movement or moving or to just be a bit more open about, you know, this isn't a set of steps that you have to be able to count to eight. <laughs> um, yeah. But the silent disco, the disco does it for us. Yeah. We don't necessarily need to say dance because we're saying disco. Yes, yes. And people sort of understand what a silent disco is. And then, of course, you've layered it up and it is completely different to a silent disco, but you've hooked people already. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the doorstep dance project, which was devised in COVID times as a sort of urgent, what do people need? And it was very much about gifting. So we wanted Mm -hmm. to gift work to artists. And then those doorstep dances, the idea was that people could book them for someone else. So that was the journey. It wasn't you book it to come to your house. 
you book it as a gift for someone else. So that also was a kind of step of how do we reach beyond our close circle? You know, we don't want it to be our mates, the artists who are getting this, but our mates, the artists can give it to someone else. So it gets a bit wider. Now we did call that deliver a dance. We used the D word. And actually some of them were, well, one of them in particular was a song (laughs) with a bit of movement, but very little with it. But it still felt like the deliver a dance kind of sat okay because it was this physical arriving Mm. at someone's doorstep that in itself is a dance, really. Mm. It's like Mm. that physical gift giving. I think it's so brilliantly interesting because it's like at the beginning of our conversation, it's like we need to make what you need to make kind of thing. You've made those brilliant doorstep places and we can hear in ourselves. I do this all of the time. Does it have enough dance? Is it dance? Is it is it this? I'm like, I don't think we should be asking ourselves these questions anymore. Like, this is what I've made. Like, who should watch this? Where can this be kind of thing? Because we want the categories and we want the venues, you know, that have dance in their title to sort of like say that this can or can't happen kind of thing. And it's a bit like actually it's sort of going with a, you know, an ethos and a an energy of a person to kind of connect there's so much there I love that idea of the doorstep we did something similar and we had a similar intention and I'd love to talk to you more perhaps another day about what worked for you about that gifting because I think in the end it was households booking it for themselves but accidentally it became a gift for other people around because you had somebody in a top window looking out. And there was one particular day when I was stood on a street corner in this old lady came out of her house and she was like, what's going on? And I said, oh, this woman here has just booked our show and it's going to happen on the doorstep on the pavement here. Oh, great. So she went in and she grabbed a deck chair and she came out with a tenner. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. You know, we did say that people could pay what they wanted online. But, you know, it was the midst of COVID and I couldn't take physically a tenner off of an old lady. In a street, it felt so against all of my principles as well. I was like, no, sit down and enjoy it, sit down and yep. enjoy it. So she just got this little dance performance turn up on her street. And I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I would love to use that as a marketing tool for another show that's somewhere else. Because it, when you think about that mm-hmm. audience trajectory and how you might take them from the analogy you had, Tom, of naught to one, or maybe the one to two, you know, they've done their first bit, they've done their first bump, they've danced onto a playlist, they've seen this accidental performance they've decided oh dance isn't so scary quite like that where do I go for the next bit and I'm really interested in how we then take that audience on a journey but that's the hard bit I think that's the bit where you need time you need resources I mean we've just got a commission at Greenwich Dance to work with the Royal Parks and one of the many ambitions of this project is to try and bring new audiences to the park it's not to bring new audiences to dance it's not to have dance in the park it's to bring some particular new audiences and one of them is young people but you know it's an honour for them to have chosen dance to be the vehicle to do that but then how do we scaffold the experience how do we build that experience that really does draw young people to the park and I'm not sure we'll get it right the first time and so I want more money I want more time to be able to go this and then okay if we did this then how do we get them to that and that's where yeah we need some time and talking of time I'm very conscious that we are running out but I do want to ask you perhaps two questions one does pick up on this idea of numbers and really follows through from your doorstep performance there because I imagine the numbers for that were really small when we were doing it obviously you didn't want more than six to be actually uh, those physical audience Mm. because that was the bubbles but you, you know you hoped for a few people in windows and one of the things I felt 
are coming through and living through this pandemic is that there's a sort of different value now placed on the experience for those few. Whereas two years ago, I felt as an organisation, we were being very much asked to say how many millions of people are going to see this thing. And now it feels quite liberating to go, we're going to do this and there's going to be 30 people. And going back to that thing I was saying before about retention, I also, you know, there's not going to be millions of unique audience either because I want the same people to be coming back. So actually that, that sort of lowers numbers. And we went to a little panto at Christmas. There was nine in the audience and my son made up for the missing sort of 76 and with all of his heckling. But the company was so lovely at drawing his heckles into it and his banter. You know, they really bounced off each other. And for us as a family, I felt like crying with gratitude that this company had put on such a wonderful show that was the highlight of our Christmas when everything else has been cancelled and they did it for nine of us. And I wondered whether that's changed for you when you're in front of an audience. Do you feel like you still want the numbers there or do you feel the value of having a really enriched experience for five or six? I feel like I've really loaded that question. (laughs) How does that feel for you now having lived through this last crazy two years? I think for me it comes back to the frame. Like if you've made a show, an event, or something for a hundred people, and ten come. It doesn't work very yeah, well. Yeah, your your circle of chairs. If you're expecting twenty and you yeah. got three, that would be a hole, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or the disco is made for a hundred. Really, yeah. that's the sort of optimum number, so that you get this collective energy. And if only ten come, then that's hard work. You know, and the number of performers are almost the same as the number of participants. It's a strange dynamic. But the doorstep dances, those works are made to be intimate. Mm -hmm. And for example, the one that I did, I again did it with my children because it was the only way I could work. Um, It became your company. I love that. They became my company. (laughs) So I was a polar bear with my two polar bear cubs and we had a storyteller with us. So they were interfacing with the house owners. And it was a story of these polar bears having broken off their ice sheet and arrived in Cardiff. And what that meant was that the storyteller, Connor Allen, could really improvise with the audience. You know, they could have a conversation and a dialogue. We did do it once in a cul-de-sac and the whole cul-de-sac had come out. And actually it was quite hard to then navigate that seven, eight or nine groupings of people here to try to meet. So I think it depends on the frame. that's a really good point. And if the audience numbers meets the frame, because if you've made it for something and then it's something else, then that's where you encounter it. That's where it doesn't work. How about you, Tom? How does that pan out for you? So there's there's the making it for the numbers that you kind of want to. But one of the things that I think a lot more about is that if I want to extend that and I want to go further, then I can just find a version that will potentially be online to have a more of a, a kind of a larger audience if I need to. So it can kind of like go up and down that scale. But something that I'm really wrangling with at the moment is in this everybody dancing every day, that is a lot of numbers. That's a lot of people that I'm trying to talk about there. That's a global world mm-hmm. as, with its ambition. So my sense is to make the very, very best thing that I can to make that first thousand people come and be really dedicated and with me. And what we know from kind of business or from anything that exponentially grows is that it becomes a tipping point of when quality and meeting people 
and understanding the audiences and it being exponentially sort of rise until you have like, you know, I guess our flagship company of somebody like New Adventures, where it's just a tipping point where it's like, of course I go to that. You know, you don't need to sort of almost do anything and audiences are sort of flooding towards it. But we have to do so much work in the early days. What is our messaging? What is our storytelling? Are we saying the right thing? Are we connecting in the right way? Are we doing all of those bits? And sometimes our funding structures sort of stop us and start us and stop us and start us and don't quite allow us to grow. Something recently I've said to an organisation is, I'd love you to invest in me and the company and not the work. That will really help me because that means that you can go on the journey with me, which will allow the audience to rise. But if I keep cutting it off, curtailing it, then it will be sort of trickier. So I guess, I mean, I've answered that in lots of different ways, but um, that's the mentality I have at the moment. And I love it. And I think that that is a great place to stop. You've both been so inspirational and filled me with so many thoughts and loads more questions. And I feel like I could put another two podcasts on this subject together but thank you for your time and if you would like to hear more episodes about subjects moving artists of today search for talking moves wherever you get your podcasts don't forget to subscribe leave a review and spread the word and if you'd like to be part of the arts unboxed family and do dance differently with us at greenwich dance email us at info at greenwichdance.org.uk with podcast in the title and we'll get in touch but for today that's it from us and do join us next time for more talking moves Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Deborah, so very much. Thank you. Thank that was you. great. Yeah. I dotted yeah. all over my paper today, but I think <laughs> I got it.